0: Chapter Sixteen of the Glory of the Conquered. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janessa of Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Glory of the Conquered by Susan Glassbell. Chapter Sixteen. Good luck, Beason. Minutes passed and nothing happened. There was no sound of splintering glass. The tube did not fall from his hands. Not so much as gasp or groan broke the stillness of the laboratory. He did not seem to have moved even the muscle of a finger. He faced it. He understood it. He faced it and understood it as he had no other truth in all his life. No merciful mitigating force caused his mind to totter. With fairly cosmic regularity, cosmic inevitability comprehension struck blow after blow he was going blind he had spent his life studying the action of such forces as this he knew them a man who knew less would have hoped more some idle dreamer might attempt to push one star closer to another an astronomer would not do that he was going blind he could no more do his work without his eyes than the daylight could come without the sun fate jeered at him Your eyes are gone, but your life will remain. It was like saying to the sun, You are not to give any more light, but you are to go on shining just the same. He was going blind. The world which had just opened to him, the world of sunsets and forests and mountains and seas, gulped to black nothingness. Blind, swept under by a trick he would not have believed possible from his most careless student— Mastered by the things he had believed he controlled, meeting his life's destruction from the things which were to bring his life's triumph. In that moment of understanding's throwing wide her gates to torture, fate stood out as the master dramatist, making him do it himself, working it out of a mere fool's trick. Blind, blind. But his eyes fitted his brain so perfectly. It was through them all knowledge came to him. They were the world's great channel to his mind. It was through his eyes he knew his fellow beings. The lifting of an eyebrow, a queer twist to a smile. Those things always told him more than words. And but here he staggered. The mind could get this as it had all else. But on this, the heart broke. Ernestine, that smile, the love lights in her eyes the glints of her dear, dear hair. The tube fell from his hand. His head sank to the table. He was buried now, under an agony beyond all power to lift. Whether it was minutes or hours which passed then, he never knew in the days which followed. Time is not measured by common reckoning on the hill of Calvary. The thing which brought him from under the blow at last was a blinding rage. He wanted to take a revolver and blow his brains out, then and there. He, a man supposed to have a mind. He, counted a master of those very things. And now what? Manhood, power, himself, gone. Stumbling through his days, useless. A curse to himself and everyone else. Groping about in the dark. A thing to be pitied and treated well for pity's sake. Cared for, looked after, helped. That beat down the bounds of control. He did things then, which he never remembered, and would not have believed. It all rushed upon him, the birthday night, the crafty, insidious mockery through every bit of it, until everything to which he had held tottered about him, and goaded beyond all power to bear, there came a slow, comprehending, soul-deep curse on the world, and all that the world had done. And then, out of the darkness, through the blackened, dizzying, tottering mass, a voice, a face, a smile, a touch, a kiss, And the curses gave way to a sob, and things steadied a little. No, not the world and everything it had done, for it was a world which held Ernestine, a world which had given Ernestine to him for his. He fought for it then, for his faith in the world, his belief in the things of love. It was the fight of his life, the fight for his own soul. Come what might in the future, it was this hour which held the decisive battle. For if he could not master those things which were surging upon him, then the things which made him himself were gone for all time. And when sense of the underlying cunning of the blow brought the surrendering laugh close to his parched lips, it was held back, held under, by that ever-recurring memory of a touch, a voice, a face. It was Ernestine, their love, fighting against the powers of damnation for the rescue of his soul." Even in the battle's heat he had full grasp of the battle's significance, knew that all the future hung upon making it right this hour with his own soul. His face grew gray and old, he concentrated days of force into minutes. But little by little, through a strength greater than that strength with which men conquer worlds, a force greater than the force with which the mind's big battles are won, by a force not given many since the first of time, he held away, beat back the black tides ready to carry him over into that sea of bitterness from which lost souls send out their curses and their jeers and their unmeetable silences. He tried to see a way. He tried to reach out to something which should help him. Standing there, amid the wreck of his life, he tried to think, even while the ruins were still falling about him, of some plan of reconstruction. It was like rebuilding a great city destroyed by fire— the brave heart begins before the smoke is cleared away, but that task is a simple one. The city destroyed by fire may be rebuilded as before, but with him, the master builder was gone out of those poor, scarred, ungeneraled forces which remained. could he hope to bring anything to which the world would care to give place? He could see no way yet; all was chaos, and just then there came a knock at the door. He paid no heed at first. What right had the world to come knocking at his door? What could he do for anyone now? The knock was repeated, but he would not go. If it were some student, what would he do for him? He could only say, I can do nothing for you. Go to someone else. And should it be one of his fellow professors come to counsel with him, he could only say to him, I have dropped out. Go on without me. I wish you good luck. That message he had thought to give. And now... Again the knock, timidly this time, fearing a too great persistency, but reluctant to go away. He would go in just a minute now. There would not come another knock. Well, let him go. When all the powers of fate had gathered round to mock and jeer, was it too much to ask that there be no other spectators? Was not a man entitled to one hour alone among the ruins of his life? He who would gain entrance was starting very slowly to walk away. He listened to him take a few steps, and then suddenly rose and hurried to the door. He was not used to turning away his students unanswered. It was Beeson who turned eagerly around at sound of the opening door. Beeson, of all people, that boy who never in the world would understand. He was accustomed to reading faces quickly, and even through his dark glasses, his worried eyes read that Beeson was in trouble, moved by something from the path in which he was wont to go. "'I'm sorry to interrupt you,' stammered the boy." "'as he motioned him to a chair. "'Oh, that's all right. "'I wasn't doing anything very important, "'just finishing up something,' he added, "'glad when he heard his own voice "'that it was only Beeson. "'I'm in trouble,' blurted out Beeson, "'and I, I wanted to see you.' "'The man was sitting close to a table, "'and he rested his elbow upon it "'and shaded his eyes with his hand. "'Trouble.' "'His voice was kind, though a little unsteady. "'Why, what's the trouble?' "'I've got to stop school. I've got to give up my work for a whole year.' The hand still shaded his darkened eyes. His mouth was twitching a little. "'A year, Beeson,' he said. Anyone else would have been struck with the note in it. "'You say, a year?' "'Yes,' said Beeson. "'A whole year. My father has had some hard luck and can't keep me here. "'I try to get work in Chicago and stay on, but I not only have to make my own way, "'but I must help my mother and sister.' next year another deal my father's in will probably straighten things out and then i suppose i can come back the man very slowly nodded his head i see he said his voice coming from way off somewhere i see it's tough exclaimed beeson bitterly pretty tough dr Hubers had turned his chair away from beeson and with closed eyes was facing the light from without there was a long pause Beeson waited patiently, supposing the man to be thinking what to say about so great a difficulty. As I understand it, he said, turning around at last. It's like this. You are to give up your work at the university for a year, just one short little year, and do something else. Something not so much in your line, perhaps, but something which will be helping those you care for. Making it easier for someone else. It's to be your privilege, as I understand it, to fill a man's place. That's about it, isn't it? "'But that's not the point,' I thought, in an injured, almost tearful voice, "'that you would understand. "'Oh, I do. I see the other point. "'You hate to stop work for,' he cleared his throat, "'for a year.' "'A year,' said Beeson dismally, "'is such a long time to lose.' "'The man had nothing to say to that. "'His head sank a little. "'He seemed to be thinking. "'Finally he came out of his reverie, "'seemed to come from a long way off. "'And where are you going, my boy?' he asked kindly. What are you going to do? I'm going clear out west, said Beeson gloomily. Father has something for me with the company in the northwest. Out there, an eager voice rang out, a voice which rested on a smothered sob. Great heavens, man, you're going out there. Out there to the mountains in the forests. Out there where you can see the sun come up and go down, can see, can see. But his voice trailed off to a strange silence. I never cared much for scenery, said Beeson bluntly and I care a lot for all this I'm leaving. You don't really leave a thing, said the man. His voice was low and tired. When we're coming back to it. The only real leave takings are the final ones. Beeson shifted in his chair. Some of these things were not just what he had expected. Beeson, something in his voice now made the boy move a little nearer. I'm sorry for your disappointment, but I wish I could make you see how much you have to live for. Get in the habit of looking at the sunsets, Beeson. Take a good, many long looks at the mountains and the rivers. It's not unscientific. You know, with a little whimsical toss of his head, we only have so many looks to take in this world. And when we're about through, we'd hate to think they'd all been into microscopes and culture ovens. And don't worry too much, Beeson, about things running into your plans and knocking them over. You know what that wise old Omar had to say about it all. He paused, and then quoted, very slowly, each word seeming to stand for many things. And fear not, lest existence closing your account and mine shall know the like no more. The eternal sake from that bowl has poured millions of bubbles like us, and will pour. And will pour, he repeated the three words. And then his head drooped, his hands fell laxly at his sides, "'It seemed it was not of Beeson he had been thinking "'as he looked fate in the face "'with that taunt of the old Persian poet. "'But he looked at him after a moment, "'came back to him. "'He saw that the boy was disappointed. "'The gloom with which he had come "'had not lifted from his face. "'That would not do. "'He was not going to fail his student like that. "'Why, look here, Beeson,' he said in a new tone, "'all enthusiasm now. "'Maybe you'll shoot a bear.' I have a pre-sentiment, Beeson, that you will. And when you're eighty-five and have your great-grandchild on your knee, you'll think a great deal more about that bear than you will about the year you missed here at school. Now, brace up. Hard knocks wake a fellow up. You'll come back here and do better work for your year of roughing it. Take my word for it. You will. Beeson had brightened. And you think, he grew a little red, that when I come back I can have my old place here with you? The man drew in his breath drew it in rather hard. Something had taken the enthusiasm away. I'll do my little part, Beeson, he said, exceedingly quietly, to see that you are not overlooked when you come back. The boy rose to go. I do feel better, he said clumsily, but with heartiness. He looked around the room. I hate to leave it. I've had some good times here, and I'm fond of it. The man was leaning against the wall. He did not say anything at all. "'Then Beeson held out his hand. "'Good-bye,' he said, "'and thank you.' "'For a minute there was no reply, "'nothing save the very cold hand "'given in response to Beeson's. "'But that was only for the instant. "'And then the man in him, "'those things which made him "'more than a great scientist, "'things more than mind, "'not even to be comprehended under soul, "'those fundamental things "'which made him a man, "'rose up and conquered. "'He straightened up, "'smiled a little,' And then heartily, quite suddenly, came the words, "'Take a brace, Beeson. Take a good brace. And good luck to you, boy. Good luck.' The door had closed. At last he was alone again. Dizzy with the strain, he staggered to a chair. For a long time he sat there, many emotions struggling in his face. He could not see it yet, not quite. It was all very new and uncertain.' but way out there in the darkness it seemed there was perhaps something waiting for him to grasp. He would never give that other message, but it might be, if he worked hard enough and never faltered, he could learn to say to the world which had given him this, say heartily, quite sunnily, good luck to you. Good luck. End of chapter 16 Recording by Janessa of Grand Rapids, Michigan